We're in our message series on the life of Jesus. We're going through his whole time that he spent on the earth as a man, uh, teaching us about who he is and what life is all about. And the life of Jesus is documented in four books we find in the Bible. They're called the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And today we're going to be in chapter 24 of the Gospel of Matthew. And I want you to be a skeptic today. We're going to be dealing with some controversial topics, some topics that are an in-depth study. It's pretty academic stuff, but it's also mind-blowing. And so I want to encourage you, don't take my word for anything that we're going to read today. Seek it out for yourself, understand it for yourself, and come to your own conclusions about what the Word of God says. It's our goal to let the Word speak for itself today. So we're just going to try and stay out the way and just explain what it is actually saying. Last week, we were in the second part of this famous message that Jesus taught called the Olivet Discourse. It's named after the location where this message was given. It was on the Mount of Olives, which is a hillside on the side of Jerusalem. And it's a well-known message because its content is so compelling. In it, Jesus is talking about the future including the end times. And he makes some prophecies and predictions, some of which have already come true, thus authenticating the prophecies he's given about the near future from our time today, which will also come true. If you missed either of the last two weeks, I encourage you to listen online and catch up because it really is fascinating stuff. And this week, we're just gonna continue right from where we left off. We're gonna study one of the most amazing prophetic subjects in the Bible and a huge prophetic event that occurred less than 100 years ago from today. As we mentioned last week, what studying Bible prophecy does, if you're wondering, what, why do we do this? Why do we get into stuff like Bible prophecy? Why can't you tell me three ways to tolerate my spouse more or something like that? Why do we do Bible prophecy? The reason we do it is because it builds our faith because it reminds us that God is real. His promises are real. His word is true. And he is the one who holds the future in his hands. So let's allow the Holy Spirit to build our faith as we study his word together today. So at this point, the three gospels that record some variation of the Olivet Discourse come together again and share pretty much the same thing. We're gonna be in Matthew's gospel, start in chapter 24, verse 29. And I want you to underline this first phrase here, this whole phrase, immediately after the tribulation of those days. Immediately after the tribulation of those days we're going to find that Jesus is about to describe his second coming. And I had you underline that first part of verse 29 because it's just one more piece of evidence that those who claim that the Olivet Discourse is talking about events that took place long ago, between 70 AD and 120 AD, are completely wrong. Why? Because the tribulation that Jesus describes in Matthew 24 and Mark 13 is, and I quote verse 29, immediately followed by the second coming of Jesus to earth. That's what's gonna be described here. Did Jesus' second coming take place somewhere between 70 AD and 120 AD? I wanna speculate and suggest that it did not take place between 70 AD and 120 AD. Therefore, Matthew 24 and Mark 13 have to be referring to a tribulation that takes place in the future. Because what we're about to read, Jesus says, takes place immediately after it. And this is what he says. He says, the sun will be darkened and the moon will not give its light and the stars will fall from heaven and the powers of the heavens will be shaken. There's gonna be no light visible from the sun or the moon and when it says the stars will fall from heaven, the word fall in the original language simply means be without effect. 
So I would suggest to you that when you put it all together, what's simply being implied is that the whole sky is gonna be blacked out. There'll be no light coming through from the sun, the moon, or the stars. Now that could be from something like a nuclear winter, which would cause that sort of thing, but we never wanna disallow the possibility it could be just a straight up supernatural effect. God can just flick the switch if he wants and those things all go away. We don't know what it's gonna be, we just know it's gonna be terrifying to be on the earth in that time. I'm also pretty sure that somebody would have noticed if that had already happened. I'll suggest that as well. Luke 21 adds this detail for us. It says, and on the earth, distress of nations with perplexity. That just means there's no solutions to the problems. The sea and the waves roaring, men's hearts failing them from fear and the expectation of those things which are coming upon the earth. During the great tribulation, people are gonna be terrified because one terrible judgment after another is gonna rain down upon the earth. If you study through Revelation with us, you'll know about these seven bowl judgments, these seven waves of catastrophe that come upon the earth and leave people on the earth trembling and wondering what's next, this fear of the expectation over things which are coming on the earth. And yet we know from the book of Revelation that most of the people on the earth in that time will continue their stubborn rejection of God and their hate of God is gonna be even stronger than their fear of his judgment and they still won't repent, most of them. Back to Matthew 24 with verse 30. Then the sign of the Son of Man will appear in heaven. Just to point out what that's saying, it's not saying there's gonna be a sign like a cross. It's saying that the Son of Man in heaven is a sign. That's what it's saying. Then the sign of the Son of Man will appear in heaven and then all the tribes of the earth will mourn and they will see, underline the word see, see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven with power and with glory. We know from all of Bible prophecy and from the book of Revelation that as Jesus comes back to the earth at the second coming in this future time, he's gonna make a quick pit stop, so to speak, in the valley of Megiddo in Israel where the poorly named Battle of Armageddon will take place. And I say poorly named because it's not a battle, it's just an absolute instantaneous annihilation by Jesus of everyone who's there opposing him, all of his enemies, who are gonna gather around the leadership of the Antichrist believing incredibly that they can defeat God. And then as the whole world sees his coming back to earth, it says they're going to mourn. Why are they gonna mourn? Well, can you imagine the millions and millions of people who have rejected Jesus? I really believe that during the tribulation, they're just gonna double down and instead of saying, we need to turn to God because this is the judgment for the sins we've committed for rejecting God and we deserve it, we've gotta repent. Instead of doing that, they're gonna harden their hearts and say, ah, just more evidence that God isn't good. Just more evidence that he's not worth serving, that he's mean. That's what people are gonna do, I really believe that. And so why are they gonna mourn? Well, because in this moment, the second coming, Jesus is gonna appear on the clouds in glory and power and they're gonna understand undeniably in that moment that he's good and he's beautiful and he's holy and he's right and they're gonna realize that it's too late, that it's too late. No wonder they're going to mourn. I had you underline the word see because in the original language the word means see and here's why that matters. Because of everything Jesus is talking about had already happened, if all the tribulation that we looked at last week and the week before, all the trouble, if that all happened in 70 AD and 120 AD, and God says that immediately after that tribulation, these things are gonna happen, and one of the things he says is, the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven with power and great glory, and he says that people are going to see that, 
I would want to suggest to you that that hasn't happened. It's a very, very simple point because we would have seen him. People would have seen him. And of course, the only explanation is that Jesus was referring to events that are yet to come. Verse 31, and he will send his angels with a great sound of a trumpet and they will gather together his elect from the four winds from one end of heaven to the other. As Mark 13 says, from the farthest part of earth to the farthest part of heaven. So who are these elect? Well, they are those who turned to Jesus in the great tribulation who got saved and have somehow survived as well as all of the nation of Israel who we know is going to be saved at the end of the great tribulation. But notice that as Mark points out, God's elect are both on the earth and in heaven. So this is the gathering together of all God's saints, those who are on the earth at the end of the great tribulation and those who are already in heaven, everybody gathering together basically to meet Jesus in Jerusalem for the housewarming party of the King of Kings as he comes to the earth in the event known as the second coming. And then in Luke 21, there's this comment added from Jesus. He says, now when these things begin to happen, look up and lift up your heads because your redemption draws near. You may remember from last week, Matthew as a gospel is written to a specific audience. It's written to the Jews. And so all this stuff that's gonna happen in the great tribulation is there primarily for the Jews who are going to be saved in the back half of the seven years the three and a half years known as the Great Tribulation. So Jesus is telling them, now when these things begin to happen, look up and lift up your heads because your redemption draws near. If you're on the earth in this time, you're Jewish, you've turned to Jesus though, and all these terrible things seem to keep happening. The sun and moon are no longer given their light, neither are the stars. He's saying, listen, there's good news because your King, Jesus Christ, your Messiah, is coming back to the earth real soon. And so you need to take hope in the fact that all is not lost. This isn't the beginning of the end for you. This is the beginning of your salvation. God is coming back for you to redeem Israel. That's gonna happen at this time as well. All Israel is going to be saved at the time of the second coming. They're gonna see Jesus and recognize him and they'll have the opportunity to be saved. So just to make sure we're all on the same page here, make a note of this because clearly the second coming takes place at the end of the three and a half year great tribulation. The second coming takes place at the end of the three and a half year tribulation. We know that because Jesus right here has been talking about the tribulation that's gonna happen. Last week he talked about the abomination of desolation that's going to happen and kick off the great tribulation. We know from other prophecies in the Bible that all Israel is going to be saved. They're gonna look upon Jesus, they're gonna look upon him whom they've pierced and they're gonna mourn for him, they're gonna recognize him as Messiah and they're going to be saved. So we know that the second coming takes place at the end of the three and a half year great tribulation. Now for clarity's sake, please remember, the second coming and the rapture are two completely different events. It becomes such a mess if you try and turn it all into one event, which some people do. Because the first thing I point out is I say, well, well you know in Thessalonians it says that we'll go to meet him in the clouds. So if you believe the rapture and the second coming are all one and the same event, then you're basically believing we go up to meet Jesus in the clouds only to turn around and come right back down to earth with him again. Why don't we just stay here and he comes here? That doesn't make any kind of sense at all. They're two completely different events. The rapture is Jesus coming for his church and it takes place before the 70th week of Daniel and before the great tribulation. The second coming is Jesus coming with his church and it takes place at the 
end of the 70th week of Daniel, the end of the great tribulation. Verse 32, Jesus says, now learn, underline the word learn. There's only three times that Jesus says we are specifically to learn about something. Matthew 9, 13, he says, go and learn what this means. I desire mercy and not sacrifice. Matthew eleven twenty nine. 29, take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart and you'll find rest for your souls. And then here in Matthew 24. So was Jesus serious those other two times when he said, learn of me? Was Jesus serious when he said, I want you to learn mercy? Was he serious when he said, I want you to learn of me? Of course he was. There's three things that Jesus wants us to specifically be students of. Mercy, Jesus himself, Bible prophecy. That's according to Jesus. Mercy, Jesus himself, and Bible prophecy. Then in verse 32, he says, now learn this parable from the fig tree. When its branch has already become tender and puts forth leaves, you know that summer is near. So you also, when you see, underline all these things, know that, and then underline this, it is near at the doors. In case you weren't connecting the dots, Luke 21 tells us that the it Jesus is referring to, the summer that he's talking about is the kingdom of God. The kingdom of God is near. How near? At the doors. The picture here is Jesus with his hand on the doorknob, ready to turn it and push the door open. That's the picture we're to have here of the imminence of this event all unfolding. And I wanna be as transparent with you as I can be because there's two views that are worth mentioning with regards to this parable. I'm not gonna give any airtime to the view that simply dismisses this all as allegorical because that view is stupid. But here are the two views that are worth mentioning. First view is that Jesus is simply saying to the Jews, that all the signs he's told them about, Antichrist, the temple being rebuilt, the abomination of desolation, the great tribulation, etc. It could be that Jesus is telling the Jews that all of those signs are to let them know that the second coming is imminent, simply in the way that leaves on a tree that's been dead for a while let you know it's almost summer. It could mean that. And because in Luke's account, it doesn't just say fig tree, it says look at the fig tree and all the trees, some would hold this view. They'd just say, listen, there's, there's nothing super profound going on here. Jesus is just saying all these things are signs that the end times are about to unfold just like a tree budding and getting leaves is signs that it's about to come back to life and summer's about to be here. That's all it means. The second view, and the one that I hold to personally, deeply, and correctly, that we're gonna dive deep into this morning is this, and I just shared the other one with you because it it really could be legitimate, and if you hold to that view, that's no problem. I believe there's a remez, that's a word that the rabbis use, and it's a, a hidden, deeper, prophetic meaning. And I think there's one of those in this parable of the fig tree that Jesus has shared. For you see, throughout the Bible, the fig tree is frequently used as a type of Israel, a metaphor for Israel, specifically political Israel. So make a note of this. In the Bible, the fig tree is used as a type of political Israel. Political Israel. And I put a whole bunch of references on your outline that you can go look up if you'd like to on your own time. Do your own study into that. Fig tree is used as a type of political Israel in the Bible. And even if we take that Luke account into account, 
we find that Jesus still specifically mentions the fig tree. In Luke, he doesn't just say, consider all the trees. He still highlights the fig tree specifically. And in Mark and Matthew, he mentions only the fig tree. I don't think you can read that and come to the conclusion that it doesn't matter that Jesus is specifically highlighting the fig tree. What's unique about the fig tree is how it's used in scripture as a type of political Israel, but also the pattern it follows through the seasons. We had a fig tree in my backyard. I was thinking about this. You would look at it every winter and this tree would be gray and it would be white and it would be bare and you would think this tree is dead. This is the ugliest tree in the world. It's done, we just need to chop this thing down. It's not coming back. And yet every single spring, it would surprise all of us by budding and somehow coming back to life all over again. And that's one of the reasons that Jesus chooses the fig tree specifically because it's known for looking especially dead in winter and then coming back to life in the spring and the summer. And when you put this all together, many pastors, including me, believe that this remez is pointing to this prophetic picture. Political Israel, the fig tree, is going to appear to be dead for a winter season, just like the fig tree. However, there's going to come a time when all of a sudden it's going to start coming back to life just like a fig tree does in the spring. When you see this happening, know that the kingdom of God, as Luke says, the second coming is near. So make a note of this. Jesus is teaching that the rebirth of political Israel will be a sign that end times events are very, very near. Jesus is teaching that the rebirth of political Israel will be a sign that end times events are very, very near. And how true this has been. We are miraculously on course for this interpretation of the parable of the fig tree to be true. If you've been with us the last few weeks, you know that in 70 AD, 38 years after Jesus delivers the Olivet Discourse, Jerusalem was leveled to the ground by the Romans. A million and a half Jews die over the course of 18 months and they're scattered across the earth in the event known known as the diaspora. The land itself, as an insult to Israel, is renamed Philistia by the Romans after Israel's greatest and longest standing enemy, the Philistines. Philistia is more commonly known and referred to by the name that's used today, which is Palestine. Philistine, Palestine, same word across different languages. So they rename Israel Philistia, the Romans do. They rename it Palestine. So when you're wondering about the history of the Palestinian people and where does it come from, that's where it comes from. They weren't a people. They're still not a people. They're Arabs. Palestine is the name that the Romans gave to Israel as an insult to them when they scattered them across the earth between 70 and 120 AD. So a few straggling Jews attempted a few guerrilla rebellions, there were a few of them left in Israel and they tried to fight back, but that came to a definitive and tragic end in 132 AD when the last of them were massacred. After that, the land formerly known as Israel became a, a desolate wasteland. Nobody even wanted it. Indeed, the nation of Israel found itself in a long winter ceasing to exist as a country. Israel is fascinating because Israel has been and is a political nation, but it's also a people. And so the people of Israel continue to exist, but they have no country. Like a fig tree in winter, Israel looked dead. And we say it looked dead because for almost 2,000 years, it was. That's a long time. 
And as the centuries passed, even the world's greatest theologians began to say, you know, there's only one explanation for all these unfulfilled prophecies in the Bible about Israel and Jerusalem. They gotta be metaphors, figurative language, because there's just no way they can be literal. I mean, can you imagine when it's been 1,800 years since Israel was a country? 1,800 years since they've owned Jerusalem? And you're reading prophecies about that happening in the future? After 1,800 years, theologians began to say, we, we gotta reevaluate this. They've been dead for almost 2,000 years. The idea was just too ridiculous. In 1867, Mark Twain visits Jerusalem and he journals about what he finds in Jerusalem and Israel. I put the quotes on your outline. He called it a desolate country whose soil is rich enough but is given over wholly to weeds. A silent mournful expanse, a desolation. We never saw a human being on the whole route. Hardly a tree or shrub anywhere. Even the olive tree and the cactus, those fast friends of a worthless soil, had almost deserted the country. Of Jerusalem, he said, a fast walker could go outside the walls of Jerusalem and walk entirely around the city in an hour. I do not know how else to make one understand how small it is. But there were a few very committed Bible scholars, particularly in the late 1800s, who said, listen, we can't just call something in the Bible allegorical because it looks impossible to us. It's not a good enough reason. Scripture's clear. Israel will exist as a nation again. And one of my favorite examples is a fascinating man named Sir Robert Anderson. He lived and worked primarily in the back half of the 1800s and spent most of his life as the assistant commissioner of Scotland Yard. And he began applying his detective skills to the Bible and to Bible prophecy. And towards the end of the 1800s, he published a book, you can still track it down today, called The Coming Prince. And in it, he shared his conclusion that after investigating the Bible, after studying this parable of the fig tree, it was clear his word was explicit to him, Israel will exist as a nation again. And he chose to just leave it at that. He didn't say, I know how it could happen. I can see how it could happen. He just said, the Bible's clear. It's going to happen. That position was not widely accepted. It was considered a fringe theological position at the time. Well, then World War I happened. And the aftermath of World War I and reparations placed upon Germany created the perfect storm for a man named Hitler to rise to power. A man who, even by secular historical accounts, was obsessed with a satanic agenda, the occult, and the destruction of God's chosen people, the Jews. As we all know, Hitler made it his goal to eradicate the Jewish people from the face of the earth, and he almost succeeded. Over six million Jews died under Hitler, one in three on the earth. But as is always the case, God did something extraordinary in the midst of incredible pain and suffering and evil. The world had a moment, maybe the only moment the world has ever had, of supernaturally generated sympathy towards Israel in 1948, in the aftermath of the Holocaust and World War II. And on May 14th, 1948, the United Nations, under the inspiration of God, voted to give and make Israel an independent political nation. And in a single day, 
prophecies from Ezekiel and Isaiah that were more than 2,500 years old were fulfilled. So make a note of this. On May 14th, 1948, Israel was reborn as a political nation. It's incredible. Israel is a country that existed for almost 2,000 years without any land and then came back to life. It's unprecedented in history, it's staggering. You can go and find the archived photos and video online. Jews from around the world literally begin flooding into the country of Israel and building a country and infrastructure from scratch. The young Israeli government strips every seat out of a Boeing commercial passenger plane and jams a thousand Ethiopian Jews into the plane and flies them back to their homeland. Let's build a country together. Just like that, Israel springs back to life as a political nation. 1900 years without a country did not cause the nation of Israel to disappear from the earth. And the greatest attempt in history to destroy them, the Holocaust, ultimately resulted in them being brought back to life as a country. Absolutely unbelievable. Only God could pull off something like that. But wait, there's more. Because the day after Israel was declared a nation in 1948, are you tracking with me? The day after the armies of four Arab countries, Egypt, Syria, Transjordan, and Iraq, entered Israel with the intention of wiping the country off the map. Saudi Arabia sent a military contingent to operate under Egyptian command. Yemen declared war but did not take military action. This is what I want you to understand. This is how much hatred Satan had stirred up against Israel. They hadn't been a country for 24 hours yet. Please understand the point I'm making. You can't have a problem with something that hasn't existed, right? And you have all these Arab countries who immediately hate them enough to militarily invade them and try and wipe them off the map. They haven't had time to do anything to any of those countries. They haven't even existed for 24 hours yet. They hate Israel because they hate Israel. It's got nothing to do with any policy of Israel or anything Israel has done. They hate Israel because Satan hates Israel and they're under the influence of Satan, period. After a year of fighting, a ceasefire is declared and when the bullets stop flying, Jordan has control of half of Jerusalem, including the Temple Mount. From a biblical perspective, this is a massive problem because the Bible prophesies about things that involve Israel being in control of all of Jerusalem. Israel has to own the whole city in order for certain events to unfold. We have unfulfilled prophecies like Zechariah 14, which talks about half of the city of Jerusalem in the future will fall into captivity. And for Israel to lose half the city, they have to first have half the city. So the events of 1948 aren't enough if you are looking for Bible prophecy to be literally fulfilled. Well, in June 1967, 19 years later, the situation was tense. Egypt, Syria, and Jordan still hated their guts. They were consistently and constantly attacking Israel, sabotaging Israel, and striking Israeli settlements close to their border. Egypt, Syria, and Jordan begin massing their troops close to the Israeli border, and it's clear that they're about to invade them. And then God moved. The Israeli Air Force launched a preemptive attack on Egypt's Air Force and destroyed all of their planes on the ground. Every single one of them. 
The ground war began. They moved in and invaded Israel. The three nations attacked. And to make a long story short, Israel obliterates all of them in six days. These long convoys that were coming in from these countries to invade Israel, and they're just all charred remains. Every single one of them is blown up. The hand of God moved. It's unbelievable. During the fighting, Israel took even more territory and expanded their borders to include Gaza and the West Bank. Story for another day, but by the way, that territory still falls under the land that God promised to Abraham. If you understand the significance of that, that's good. But most importantly, they captured all of Jerusalem, including the Temple Mount. Suddenly the pieces were in place for prophecies like Zechariah 14 to be fulfilled, not allegorically, but literally. And as a side note, this is actual history. This is what happened. So you hear today, here's what you hear. Well, Israel needs to go back to pre-1967 borders. Here's what they're saying. The whole world says Israel has no right to be in Gaza or the West Bank. That's not their land. How did Israel get that land? They only acquired that land because the countries that owned it previously came into Israel to try and destroy them. That's the only reason Israel has possession of Gaza and the West Bank right now. So what they say, and they say we need to go back to pre-1967 borders, is they say we want to go back to before there were consequences for us trying to invade you. It's literally like someone coming into your house to try and attack you with a baseball bat. In the scuffle, you punch them in the face, they drop the baseball bat and flee, and then they start calling the cops to say he needs to give me back my baseball bat. That's literally what this is like with land. So the world is so skewed in thinking that Israel is occupying territory. No, they own it. And you know how they got it? You tried to kill them. That's how they got the land. That's why it ticks me so off when people talk about Israel occupying the land. Well, you shouldn't have tried to kill them. Then none of this would have happened. And the Arab countries have been complaining about their loss ever since. So here's the question. So those people who are left in that territory people who are in Gaza and the West Bank when Israel conquer it, those are the people who are known as Palestinians today. They belong to those countries who invaded Israel. So simple question, well then why doesn't that country just take them back? Be like, hey, sorry, we lost the part of our country that you live in, come back into our country. Those countries refuse to take them back because they want to leave them there to intentionally be a thorn in the flesh of Israel and to try and stir up international sympathy and hatred towards them. Nobody ever talks about that side of it, that these Palestinians are not allowed back into these countries. Egypt won't let them come in, even though that's where most of them are from. It's all the stuff that the press never, ever talks about. I'm not saying Israel's handled everything perfectly, but I am saying this. Israel belongs to God. There is people. When God gives you land, it's your land. Israel existed before Palestine was ever Palestine. The Jews existed before the Palestinian people because the Palestinian people aren't Palestinians. They're Egyptians, they're Syrians, they're Yemenis. I'm just gonna go with Yemenis because I don't think any of you know the right word. Yemenis, okay. And if you're gonna line up on the side of an issue, I highly recommend lining up on the side God is on. That's my recommendation. So I hope the prophecy involved in all of this amazes you. I hope it builds your faith in God and your faith in his word because this cannot be faked. 
It's absolutely impossible. You have to deal with the facts and you'll only come to one conclusion if you do. There is a God in control of history, the present, and the future, and he speaks to us through his word. And by the way, do you remember how Mark Twain described Israel as being a desolate wasteland? Well, God's done a miracle in that as well. Because Israel today has what is considered the most fertile agricultural land in the world. We're also beginning to find out that they have more natural resources than anyone else in the world. In recent years, they've discovered some of the largest deposits on the planet of oil and natural gas under Israeli soil. Russia's been clamoring for years to try and make a deal to get their hands on that natural gas because they want to control the world's gas. But Israel so far has been saying, thanks, but no thanks. And perhaps that's going to play into Bible prophecy down the road, which we know says Russia is going to come against Israel at some point. Well, incredibly, we're still not done because in verse 34, Jesus says this, assuredly, that means you can take this to the bank. I say to you, this generation will by no means pass away till, and then underline, all these things take place. All these things take place. What generation? The generation that sees the fig tree come back to life. The generation that sees Israel become a political nation again. That generation won't die out before all these things take place. What things? Everything Jesus has talked about in Matthew 24. The rise of Antichrist, the abomination of desolation, the rebuilding of the temple, the great tribulation, and the second coming. That's amazing because it means we know within a generation when the rapture and second coming is going to take place. We know it's within this generation. Now there has obviously been much discussion about what Jesus means by the term generation, especially in terms of length of time. You can make a, a biblical case for a generation being as little as 40 years. When Israel was about to go into the promised land, they've come out of Egypt in slavery, they're gonna go into the promised land, but they don't believe that God can give them victory in the promised land, so God says, you gotta wander around the desert till this unbelieving, faithless generation dies out, and then we'll give it another go with the next generation. That time period, the Bible says, is 40 years. And I try to stay away from date setting, but since 40 years would put us at 1988, for the return of Christ on the long end, I tend to hold the view that's probably not 40 years. You can actually make a case for up to 100 years because Israel was in slavery in Egypt for 400 years and the Bible tells us in Genesis 15 that those 400 years were four generations. So you can make the argument that in the Bible a generation is 100 years. That would take us up to 2048. But what's important to understand is this. With Israel existing as a political nation, with Jerusalem under their control, the Lord could rapture his church at any time. All of the prophetic checkboxes have been checked. There's nothing else that has to happen for him to rapture his church. So even if you said a generation's 100 years, Jesus didn't say, I'll come back right before the last person who was alive in 1948 dies. He's saying, no, that generation is simply not going to die out before all these things take place. So it really could happen at any point, could happen right now, could happen in 2048 if you hold to the same view that I do here. So make a note of this. While a biblical generation could be up to 100 years, Jesus could rapture his church at any time. He could rapture his church at any time. That's called the doctrine of imminence, meaning it could happen at any moment. 
And then just in case you think that Jesus doesn't want us to take this prophecy stuff seriously. Man, I try so hard to be patient and gracious, but I, I just can't handle it anymore when I hear people in the church saying, listen, Jesus doesn't want you to be concerned with this prophecy business. Don't worry about it. He wants you to be only focused on loving people and living for him. Yes, he wants you to be focused on those things. But he said specifically, I want you to learn this. He said, I want you to know this. I want you to understand this. This is to be part of your hope. You know that he even said in the Lord's Prayer that we're to pray for his kingdom to what? Come. That's what he told us to do. So anyone who says, oh, we're not to worry about that. Here's what I found. One of two things are true. One, they probably don't understand it. And instead of just being humble enough to say, I don't understand it, so I don't have a view, they just say instead, it's not important. Or two, they've heard somebody misteach it, and they're terrified to death because they think that the future for us is the most awful time the world has ever seen, and we're going to be here. We're not going to be here. We're going to be with Jesus in his presence in heaven. Praise God for that. So just in case you think he doesn't want us to take this prophecy stuff seriously, he says this in verse 35. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will by no means pass away. I don't know what else he could say to underscore the importance of it. He's saying, listen, everything that you see here, everything that you consider to be something foundational that you can trust in, he says the entire universe as you know it is going to be brought to nothing one day. Whole thing is going to be destroyed. It's going to be a new heaven and a new earth. Everything you see is going to fall away. He says, but not one of my words is going to fall away. None of them are going to hit the ground. None of them are going to go unfulfilled. None of them are empty. They all carry the weight and power of heaven. And as surely as Jerusalem fell in 70 AD, exactly as Jesus predicted, as surely as Israel became a political nation again in 1948, exactly as Jesus predicted, everything else Jesus has prophesied will happen exactly as he has predicted. Don't take my word for it. Jesus says you can take his word for it. And don't forget that one of the questions Jesus is answering, do you remember at the very beginning of the Olivet Discourse when the disciples asked Jesus these questions, one of the questions they asked him was, what will be the sign of your coming? What's going to be the sign when you come back to the earth again in the second coming? So I cannot for the life of me figure out why Christians would think that we are strange for simply believing that Jesus is actually answering the questions that he was asked. That's all we're saying. He didn't come back in 70 AD or 132 AD. That's why I believe deeply, personally, and correctly. I'm kidding, but not really. That the rebirth of Israel as a political nation was one of the single most important events in history and the single most important prophetic event since the earthly ministry of Jesus Christ. And you need to know, if you haven't figured it out, this is a controversial bit of theology within Christianity. I've always tried to be upfront with us about the fact that most of Christianity does dismiss everything the Bible says about the end times as figurative language, metaphors, word pictures. They'll say, we know Jesus comes back at some point and, and that's all we need to know. We take what I believe to be a very high view of the text of the Bible. That is to say, we take things literally, we believe the Bible unless there's a compelling reason not to. It's hard to understand. 
is not a compelling reason. It's hard to believe. Is not a compelling reason. Some people will think I'm crazy for believing this. Is not a compelling reason. None of those things are good enough reasons to not take what the Bible says literally or seriously. I believe this stuff because I've researched the text. I've researched other views. And the view we teach is the only view out there I've ever found that works, that harmonizes with everything else in the Bible. You can go anywhere in the Bible that talks about things that are going to happen in the end times. And I don't have to twist or contort or bend or manipulate or torture the text to make it work with our view. It all lines up perfectly. We can just let the Bible say what it says. But to those who disagree with what we've talked about today, especially regarding the parable of the fig tree, this is what I would say. I would say firstly that our belief that Israel becomes a nation again doesn't rest on a single piece of scripture. It doesn't rest solely on the parable of the fig tree. The Bible contains many, many prophecies that require Israel to be back in their land as a political nation in control of Jerusalem. So our whole belief in that idea doesn't rise and fall on this single fig tree parable prophecy. And I put a link there to a teaching we do on Israel where I actually go through some more of those prophecies about this. So it doesn't rise and fall on this. So even if you said, I don't believe in the fig tree thing, that's fine. There's tons of other prophecies that essentially say the same thing. The second thing I'd say to someone who doesn't buy this is just that it happened. It happened. Israel really did become a nation and really did reclaim the city of Jerusalem. None of us are arguing over whether or not that happened. And no sane person would dispute the fact that Israel becoming a nation again was ludicrously, insanely, and ridiculously improbable. In fact, had it not already happened, we would probably consider it today to be impossible. I tried to think of something I could share as a parallel example, and this one is only one-fiftieth as amazing as the Israel one. But imagine if I said to you, I found a whole bunch of prophecies in the Bible that prove that England is going to reconquer America. Imagine if I said that, you'd be like, oh, come on, that is ridiculous. Now imagine if 60 years from now that happened and we're all still alive. Do you think that that would maybe cause you to reevaluate your position on how I interpret Bible prophecy? Do you think it would maybe cause you to say, hey Jeff, would you just uh, explain that to me one more time and maybe share if there's any other things you think might happen? Of course that's what would happen. Those who don't believe in literal end times prophecy are claiming instead that yeah, Israel became a nation again and yeah, you have that belief, but your belief is wrong and the fact that it happened is just a crazy coincidence. That's really what they're saying. I need to tell you, I don't have that much faith in coincidence, especially when Bible prophecy is involved. We have, as the incredible example, Sir Robert Anderson in the late 1800s, recognizing at a time when the idea seemed insane, calling it 60 years in advance, that listen, Israel's going to become a nation again. And it did, because Jesus prophesied it would happen. And if you don't believe that's what the Bible says, then you believe in the craziest coincidence that I could ever, ever dream up. Now, because Jesus has just mentioned it, I want to point out one thing to you, and we're going to end with this. 
I want to point out something to you about the kingdom of God. This is just a good chance to, to grow in your Bible knowledge and understand something. As we mentioned, in Luke 21, Jesus says, when you see these things happening, know that the kingdom of God is near. So when you look at what Jesus is literally saying there, you have to conclude that if Jesus is encouraging people who are on the earth in the great tribulation by saying, hey, when all these things happen, the kingdom of God is almost here, then the kingdom of God must not be here yet. You tracking with me? If he says the kingdom of God is near, then it can't be there yet. And I point this out because the church today is so confused about what the kingdom of God is. There are whole churches who believe it's our job to expand the kingdom on the earth, that the kingdom is coming to the earth right now. The only problem with that is the Bible. Let me be as clear as I can be. The kingdom of God refers to the literal rule and reign of Jesus Christ. That's what it refers to. It refers to the king of kings reigning over his kingdom. The literal rule and reign of Jesus Christ. When Jesus offers the kingdom to the Jews when he comes to the earth the first time, that's what he's offering. He's offering to rule and reign as king in that moment. They don't receive him. And so when Jesus returns to heaven, the kingdom departs from the earth. Because when Jesus was on the earth and he was doing miracles, he was giving a preview of the kingdom. He was giving hints at what his rule and reign would look like. Where does Jesus rule and reign now? In heaven. In heaven. Does Jesus rule and reign on the earth right now? No. If he did, there wouldn't be murder and violence and rampant sin. The Bible and Jesus himself tell us multiple times that the earth is still under the rule and reign of Satan right now. John 16, 11, 2 Corinthians 4, 4. The Bible also tells us that the presence of the church on the earth is restraining Satan's power on the earth right now. The second coming is when Jesus will return to the earth in power and glory to rule and reign from Jerusalem over the earth. That is when the kingdom will come. That's why God says we're to pray, thy kingdom come. And that is why Jesus says when you see these things happening, know that the kingdom of God is near. At the end of the great tribulation will be the second coming when the kingdom will come to the earth. So make a note of this if you haven't already. The kingdom of God refers to the literal rule and reign of Jesus, which will take place at the second coming. It refers to the literal rule and reign of Jesus, which will take place at the end of the second coming. And let me be honest, as I've said before, if the kingdom has come, I'm horribly disappointed. Aren't you? If the kingdom of God has come to earth and the earth still looks like this, I gotta tell you, I had higher expectations for the administration of Jesus Christ. I have greater expectations. My expectation is that when Jesus rules and reign, reigns on the earth, man, justice will roll like a river. Mercy will triumph. Love will win. Grace will reign. Goodness and mercy will abound. That's what's gonna happen. 
I don't know what your expectation is, but I expect great things when Jesus rules and reigns from the throne in Jerusalem. That's why we're told to pray for his kingdom to come. That's why we long for his kingdom to come. Because when his kingdom comes, nobody is going to be disappointed. But make no mistake, the kingdom has not come yet. It's very close, but it hasn't come yet. Praise God for that. You know, God's word is amazing. And you can trust his word. That's why we study this stuff. You can trust him. You can also trust that not only is he faithful to keep his promises, he's able to keep his promises. What I love about Bible prophecy is it proves that not only is he desiring to do great things in the future, not only does he have a plan, but he has the power and authority to bring that plan to pass. I love that. He's not only faithful, but he's able That means whatever he says to you and I about our lives, it's not something he just wishes would happen. He has the power and the authority to bring it to pass. And I love that. I'm so thankful that I'm part of the family of God. Let's just use this coming time of prayer and worship to just revel in the glorious truth that, man, we belong to Jesus. We belong to Jesus, the one who holds time in his hands, the one who's in control of everything. He's in control of you. He's in control of me. He's the one who is setting our path. He's the one who's secured our future. And you can rest in that. Maybe just rest in that this morning. Let's pray together. Would you bow your head and close your eyes? Father, we just marvel this morning at your control and your power and your authority, Lord God, over space and over time and over all things. We marvel at how you hold all things in your hand. And Father, we thank you that whatever may be going on in our lives right now, We know how the story ends, Lord, that we will rule and reign with you for a thousand years on the earth as you show us what it would look like if we had just stuck with you from the beginning. And then we'll rule and reign with you in eternity, in a future more glorious than we can imagine. Thank you, Lord, that uncertainty may be the word of the day in the world today. But Lord, we know our future and our eternity is secure. We know the ending because it was written by you. And we know that you're not only faithful, but God, you're able. You're able to do everything you promised you would do. And so we rest in that. We thank you for that. And we love you for that this morning, Lord God. Well, thanks for taking this time to listen and be in the Word of God with us. If you've never given your life to Jesus, then you need to go to our website, mynewhope.ca, right now. When you get there, you'll see a graphic on our homepage that says, The Gospel. Click on that and you'll be able to watch a short video where we share the best news you'll ever hear in your life. It's more important than whatever else you're doing right now. So stop whatever else you're doing, go to mynewhope.ca and click on the gospel. If God has blessed you through this message, we'd love to hear about it. Shoot us an email at info at mynewhope.ca and let us know how God has impacted your life through his word. If you're in the greater Vancouver area, I want to invite you personally to come and be a part of New Hope Church. We believe God is doing something real special as we grow together in our faith and love for Jesus, and we would love you to be a part of it. 
And finally, if you'd like to support the Bible teaching ministry of New Hope through financial giving, you can also do that through our website. Just go to mynewhope.ca slash give. Thanks again for listening. Thanks for being in the Word of God with us. And always remember, God is with you.